Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. This section of Isaiah is intended for the comfort of the Israelites who were going to be spending 70 years in captivity. And, you know, that's a, that's a wide range. That's a very broad statement, the Israelites, because there were some who were very godly, very, very, very much wanting to follow the Lord and have a heart for God. Uh, the remnant, a very small percentage of that. Then there was a large swath of Israelites who uh, weren't following the Lord. So they are, uh, God's speaking to all of those. In 49, he's talking to the uh, Israelites, and he's talking about um, their obedience and their failure in obedience, and then he's going to set their disobedience against a unique individual who is the anointed of the Lord, the, the, the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, and we're going to look at his obedience, and we're going to be able to compare them. And I think that's very deliberate on the Lord's part to see you know, the difference between disobedience and obedience, the blessings of obedience. Even though there's trials, even though there's hardships, there's real blessings there. There are trials and hardships that go with disobedience, but they're very different. And so their disobedience, as we said, as we finished 48, the call was to leave Babylon, right? That was going to a future generation. And there was the warning, the last verse of chapter 48, saying, you know, if you disobey, if you choose to stay in Babylon, there's not going to be any peace for you. Um, That's the spiritual reality of disobeying the Lord. You walk away from your peace. So it said, there's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And then it jumps in and and it starts talking firsthand Chapter 49, the servant of the Lord. He was introduced in chapter 42, this unique individual, obviously the Messiah, obviously Jesus. He says, listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. In a lot of ways, Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because the pictures we get of Jesus um, for all the detail we do have in the New Testament, there's some things that it doesn't say that we only get from the book of Isaiah, some 740 years before Jesus shows up. But here's some things that we see, obviously, are unique about the Lord in his first coming. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. You're familiar with, you know, our, our minds hasten to the Christmas stories, you know, the, the story out of the Gospels of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and telling her that she's going to have a son and naming the child ahead of time, call his name Jesus because he, he shall save his people from their sin. And so it's very much fulfilling this scripture right here. In the matrix of my mother or the inner parts of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Verse 2, he says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. You know, a lot of people in this world uh, want to wield power, and of course they have to do it with their armies and their money and uh, their um, leveraged, you know, positions in the world and, and whatever it is. And the Lord doesn't have to do that. He has power just in his words. He made his mouth like a sharp sword. In the, and then this, this second half of the verse 2 there, in the shadow of his hand he has hidden me. You know, that kind of references the obscure childhood of the Lord. We just don't know much about his childhood. We have a couple of glimpses. Of course, his, you know, his birth, we know about, you know, some of his, his earliest years there as a child. We kind of put the, the flight to Egypt very early in his life, right after he was born, maybe up to two years old. 
and then we have a, just a little glimpse of him when he's in the temple and a little bit, a little bit older, right? 12, 13. Uh, the rest of it we don't know anything about. I think this is what he's talking about here in verse 2. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He's just kind of tucked away, and you don't know anything about him until the Lord calls him into ministry. And it says, and he has made me a polished shaft, in his quiver he has hidden me. The idea is there's a lot of refinement going on there. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of perfections loaded into him, a lot of preparation. You know, a polished shaft is, uh, you know, that arrow that's just going to, no matter what you aim at, wham, it's going to hit that. It's going to be perfect. You know, we've got a lot of archers here, bow season archers. You don't want arrows that are real wonky. You don't know what direction they're going in. You go look for the best materials, the carbon fiber now and stuff. The imagery there is, is easy to, for us to grasp, and that is that Jesus is going to be outfitted perfectly for the ministry you know, I think there's, I think there's, there's really a lesson in there for us too, and that is, um, you know, because Jesus is our example, our older brother, uh, our Lord, and that is that as we follow the Lord and want to be used by Him, there may be long periods of preparation where just it seems like nothing's happening, and that's okay. That's pretty much the norm. Um, I think somebody did a study one time, and they looked at people who had been used mightily by the Lord, just pastors, Bible teachers, whatever, missionaries. And they came to the conclusion that the average time between somebody's realizing a call upon their life and the time that the Lord used them to the most was about 15 years, 17 years. And that those 15, 17 years is time just of preparation, of learning to depend on the Lord, learning what it is to, to walk in fellowship with Him, to depend on the Holy Spirit, learning His Word. And so long periods of preparation are the norm here. And Jesus wasn't immune from that. Uh, as he's growing as a child, he's learning. Of course, there's that whole human side, and there's the whole, um, uh, you know, fully human but fully God. And so it's kind of hard to understand all of that. Verse 3, he says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So people look at that verse and say, oh, he's talking about the nation of Israel. If you've got the New King James translation, you'll see in that first sentence, and he said to me, the word me there is probably not capitalized. because the translators of the, the New King James interpret that verse to be literally about Israel. And uh, so they don't capitalize the M and me. But I think it ought to be, I think a lot of Bible Teachers feel it ought to be capitalized, and yet it says, you, you know, you, it's not that I want to start playing games with the, with the name Israel, but um, if you go a little farther, it says, then I said, I, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with God. And now the Lord says to me, who formed me from the womb. So it says, seems to be the same person speaking, and the only person who could say that would be Jesus. So what's with the name Israel? Well, you know, the name Israel comes from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who after that rough night with the Lord, you know, on the river Jabbok, the wrestling match, having his, his hip thrown out of joint, the Lord says, oh, what's your name? And Jacob says, well, it's Jacob. And of course, Jacob means heel catcher, the guy who's going to do what he can to get in front of you. And, you know, I'm going to calculate out everything to come out the winner. Uh, someone's going to trip you up. And the Lord says, I'm changing your name to Israel, which means governed by God. 
And so then um, the nation of Israel comes from his 12 sons, obviously. Again, the name Israel just means governed by God. And was, you know, the Lord Jesus governed by God? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that's unreasonable to see the Lord Jesus called after that title in type. Obviously, you know, there's a way, in, a time in which in the, in the scriptures, Israel was supposed to be a type of Jesus. Remember, in the, in, the, in the youth of Jesus, his childhood, when he fled to Egypt, and then the scripture says, and it borrows directly from, from Israel's history in coming out of Egypt, he, he says, this, thus the scripture was fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. So Israel, in a way, was supposed to be a type of Jesus. Some ways they are, in a lot of ways they obviously failed. So I, I'm just taking some time to explain why I, I see that as Jesus. But I'm not playing games with the, with the title of Israel and, and making it be the church or anything like that. Got it? Okay, let's keep going. And then he said, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, uh, I have labored in vain, and I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Again, we, we get into some views into the heart and mind of Jesus that we don't get from the New Testament. And here's, his, here's something. He said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. You know, there were a lot of times where it looked like just nothing was happening. Nobody was doing anything and believing in the Lord and things were going backwards. Um, There was a time when a lot of disciples left him. You know, it just seems like um, in some ways he was, you know, maybe he felt that way. It seems like it says it right here. I'm, I'm wasting my time in some ways. You know, the disciples are, you know, they long to be, to, to, to uh, learn, but they're so slow to be taught. And personally, I find a lot of comfort in that. But, you know, again, Jesus is our example. And, you know, his heart and mind in some ways is recorded. And I think there's a good lesson for us. He says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. You know, I think that, I think there's a truth here for us. And that is this, as we labor for the Lord, we may not get to see a whole lot of fruit that comes from uh, what the Lord gives us to do. Um, we may have to labor faithfully without seeing a lot of impact. We're, we're sowing seeds. We're trying to lay things down in people's hearts. We may not. We may spend most of our Christian ministry without knowing a lot of that fruit. You know, in one place, especially as I'm thinking about it, in children's ministry, you know, the heroes are those who labor in the children's ministry year after year, faithfully, you know, and you may not, may not see the fruit of that for a very long time or at all. But later on, when, when those kids get older and they start making decisions and they start drawing upon that what has been laid down in their hearts so long ago, now there's fruit. And it might be that those Sunday school teachers are long gone, yet their fruit is real. I saw that personally in a church I was at, when I was at Bible college, there was a guy who was who was come to the Lord. He had had kind of a hard story about um, serving in Iraq and um, and being a, a gunner in a in a copter, you know, firing the fifty caliber out the door. And he had a lot of, you know, he saw a lot of bad stuff. And uh, then when he came back to the states, he was in a gang and all kinds of stuff. And he was just miserable. And he, and he shared this with me. He said, "I I just stopped one day and I thought." I'm not happy. And then he started thinking about the last time he was happy, and he, his mind came to children's ministry. He says, I was happy when I was in Sunday school. And so he went back to church. 
And I just thought that was a beautiful example. Um, one guy whose fruit laid down in his heart and mind, seen very much later. Maybe the laboring that you're doing right now in, in your family, and your friends, your coworkers, maybe you're never going to see just exactly how that comes about. But you just, just rest in the Lord. Jesus said that in the New Testament, right? He gave us that parable of the farmer who goes out, that plant just grows day by day, very slowly. He doesn't know how, but there's stages, there's growth. So um, having some views for uh, enduring, the, serving the Lord and expecting fruit, maybe long term down the road. Jesus did it. We should expect it. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Look at the contrast there. How the material looks like he's just kind of spinning his wheels, and there's not much going on there. But look what the way he really see is seen by the Lord. How different that is. I shall be glorious in the eyes of my God, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So plainly, this servant of the Lord has a call and his, his first ministry is to the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and the New Testament uh, explanations of, of Jesus' ministry, and like the book of Romans, says that the gospel came first to the Jew, but then what does it say? Then to the Gentile. Jesus said that, right? When he sent his disciples out the first time, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, just go to the, the houses of Israel. I think he's fulfilling that exactly. And, but the Lord says also that the word there is that he's also going to be given as a light to the Gentiles. And so it was obvious to see that the salvation that the Messiah would bring would be worldwide. It wouldn't be just for the Jews. There are some ways in which the Orthodox Jews have missed that. Even at, at that time, you know, they have the Orthodox Jews... Some of them pray, uh, you know, 13 prayers of blessing the Lord every morning. And, um, you know, one of those things that they pray is, I thank you, Lord. I bless you, Lord, and thank you that you did not make me a Gentile. Whoa, wait a minute there. I'm taking that a little personally. Um, But the truth is, obviously, right here in the Scriptures, that the Lord would be given as a light to the Gentile, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth, even over all the way to the little shoot. So, and aren't, aren't we glad that that has come to the ends of the earth? Here we are, almost on the other side of the world. We have um, salvation come to us. There's another little thing here that you ought to see. You know, there is a way of interpreting scriptures that some people camp out on that says the scriptures only have one meaning. And that's a fair thing to say, however... Um, I can show you right here plainly that the Lord is free to take a verse of Scripture and give it to you personally that's outside the meaning of the text. And it could be something very, very meaningful to you. And I'm going to show you that none less than Paul the Apostle did that. So 
People who say there's only one meaning for that verse right there and it can't mean anything ever again in anywhere else, you may encounter that thought and that rule of interpretation, and I don't think that's completely fair. Again, verse 6 plainly is to Jesus. That's the plain meaning. Yet, go with me to Acts chapter 13. I mean, there's no one else really uh, that has been given to be the light to to the Gentiles, but... Let's go all the way forward to the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are on their their first missionary journey. They They come to Antioch. Now, there's a lot of Antiochs in that world at that time. One of the Seleucid rulers, when he, the general Seleucid, after he got the territory divided after Alexander the Great, Uh, The general Seleucid, he went through that area and named about 10 cities after his dad, Antioch. Um, So there in one of those cities named Antioch, it says that they went into the, uh, verse 42, they went, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue to preach the gospel. The Jews kind of were, we'll listen to you again. The Gentiles begged him that they would hear it again. Verse 42, when the Jews went out of the synagogues, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So they go come back the next Sabbath, verse 43. Uh, many of the Jews, devout proselytes, followed Paul, Barnabas, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Again, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came out to hear the word of the God. It says this, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And look at the verse. He draws out to be something where the Lord gave it to him personally about the call of the Lord on his life. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. Whoa, that doesn't apply to you, Paul. That only applies to Jesus. But wait a minute. Are we going to say Paul made a mistake here? Hardly. Okay, I just want you to be aware of that, that there are times and places where in your devotional reading of the scriptures, you're longing to hear from God. He may pull a verse out and give you a meaning and a call that doesn't fit exactly the context. And that's okay. We've got to be careful with that. It's not that we're getting licensed to make the Bible say whatever we want. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there are ways in which the Lord will give you a verse, and it's for you. You know, I wouldn't apply that to Paul. I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk up to Paul and tell him, the Lord has given you as a light to the, you know, and quote that verse to him. I would never do that, mostly because he's dead. But I would never do that for anybody. But if the Lord spoke to me about that in some fashion, you know, it'd have to be very, very clear and very straightforward. Okay, I just wanted you to be aware of that. So that, you, so that when you encounter that interpretive rule that some people will run you over with, that you are prepared to, to see it in another fashion. Let's go back to the text in Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. And again, this is predicting the way this servant will be received. The nation abhors is going to be is going to be Jesus rejected by Israel. Of course, it says that in in the Gospels over and over again. It says it in John. He came to his own, and his own received him not. 
But also, it says, um, whom man despises, generally, God is rejected in the world. And again, we need to see that as we identify with him, the world's going to reject us. Uh, him who the nation abhors to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. And so Jesus, you know, on the night he was last night with his disciples, he took that uh, bread and that cup and established a new covenant. And uh, that covenant would be in his blood and in his broken body. And uh, it says, here's the covenant uh, to restore the earth. We know that's going to happen during the millennium, the end of that last week that is still outstanding on God's calendar, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. You know, and that's, you know, Jesus himself quoted that verse a little bit few, uh, farther in the book of Isaiah when he, when that, uh, he kind of inaugurated his public ministry in the, uh, the um, synagogue of Capernaum, they handed him the scroll and he opened up to Isaiah 61 and said, the, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I'm here to proclaim good news to captives, set the captives free, the freedom from sin. They say to the prisoners, uh, we who were stuck in sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin because of his work on the cross, paying penalty for sin, that penalty has been paid for, but the power of sin has also been broken, so that they may say to the prisoners, go forth, you can leave sin now, you can walk away from it, by the power of the Holy Spirit now that he's given, to those who are in darkness, of course that's spiritual darkness, show yourself, calling people out of spiritual darkness, they shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They're going to be taken care of completely. They're going to be fed in ways that the world doesn't understand. And that's what that verse is saying. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. Uh, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. And this probably has a devotional application, talking about being fed of the Lord out of his word, uh, you know, living water, those things. But I think it's also a, a far-reaching view towards the millennium. He, and he says, verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Again, that um, might have a view towards the millennium when the world is remade and, and Israel is the centerpiece of all nation, you know, all the nations. Jesus is ruling and reigning from Israel and the world wants to come to Israel and bring the Jews that remain. But I, I think you could devotionalize that too. And it's, yeah, that's my own word, devotionalize. I made it up. I will make each of my mountains a road. There are times when we have mountains in our way. And there are very large obstacles. And it would be much easier to go around them. But that's not the way the Lord is leading. He is leading right over the top of it. He, he makes each of those mountains a road. There's a path that he leads us on. 
when we make it over those, um, those difficulties, those mountains, we realize that the Lord is leading us and guiding us, strengthening us. That old um, uh, classic Christian book, Hind's Feet in High Places, that comes out of Scripture. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinim. And again, that has a view plainly towards the um, millennium. The land of Sinim, uh, we don't really know what that is. It could be just the idea from the farthest parts of the earth. Some people see that that you know, could be a reference to China or Egypt, something like that. Certainly it's, it's not clear. What it is clear is it's somewhere really far away on the other side of the world from where they were. So that's the idea, is that the salvation, again, is going around the world, and they're all going to come. So, um, verse 13, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Again, these scriptures, these prophecies are given to those who are sitting in captivity in Babylon, and they're called to look at the larger view uh, remember, sitting in Babylon, it would be very easy to be convinced, boy, we have just blown it so bad, we're never getting out of here. What chance do we have of getting out of Babylon? Babylon has got all the military power, all the authority. You know, we can't lift a finger. And so here we are. And yet the scriptures have a, give them a picture of them returning to Israel. And Israel blessed and strengthened and prospering. So it would be very comforting uh, for those who wanted to, you know, that remnant of the Lord that wanted to see what God was still doing for them. And so, verse 14, there's a topic here given in verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Um, the idea there is God's, God's done with me. And, uh, you know, that's uh, a common thought that the enemy wants us to chew on when we're in the doghouse. And uh, we've, we've blown it. We've made a mistake. We're um, in a place where God's got to get our attention again. And, you know, a time for repentance, a time for some clarity. And it's easy to think, oh, boy, I've blown it so bad. God's never going to come and get me. It's just over. Well, that's not true. The Lord may have to change a few things here and there, and you may need to have, have, a, have a time out to think things over and for some new levels of sanctification and being done with sin, the Lord's not done with you. And this topic is going to run all the way through chapter 52, verse 12, and uh, this idea that they're holding, they're, that, that they're milling over, God's done with me. no. And here's God's response, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. And unfortunately, in our, in our day and age, there are examples, you know, bizarre examples of, of motherhood run amok, you know, when somebody's done something strange to abandon a baby, you know, in some oddball way. And those are just so outlandish. It makes the news because um, it's so contrary to, you know, the natural affections. Uh, the Lord says, yeah, that might happen once in a while, but I'm never going to forget about you. Yet I will not forget you. Verse 16, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. 
you know the little tricks of trying to remember things now that you're now that I'm a little bit older and we got those senior moments occasionally you know we try to to get some ways to make sure I don't you know as I'm up in the office I come downstairs and forget what I've come downstairs for you know I sometimes I have to write myself a note you know I get downstairs and remember what I came down for you know and some people just write the little note on their hand I got to remember something and oh yeah I got to do that well here's the thing God says to the Israelites see I I have you written on the palms of my hands. I'm not going to forget you. Um, you are uh, part of me in what I'm doing. And of course, our minds jump forward, don't they? To, to the scars in Jesus' hands and in his feet that uh, he has the marks of our sin in his body. It's said that it's the only man-made thing in heaven will be the nail prints in Jesus' body. You know, that's, that's a fair way of seeing also the, this picture, the inscription of the palms of my hands. And I was thinking about this. You know, this day and age, uh, I'll, I'll set this before you. Maybe you can use it. You know, I, this day and age, we see a lot of people inked up, right? A lot of tattoos and stuff like that. And I, I always want to be able to talk to them. And I was thinking about how to do it. And I, I thought about this verse. I thought I would talk to them this way. And it's just saying, you know, take, a, take an interest in their tattoos. Obviously, that's a very personal commitment of the body you know just to ask them about their tattoos and say what does that mean what's that get them to open up and talk about it and then you know say things like wow that's a big time commitment of your body to whatever or whoever that is you know and they have to respond to that and say you know god has done that for you too only he didn't use those little needles he used ones like this big he did it in a permanent fashion also he's committed his body to an identification with you because you mean so much to him I think that'd be a great way to talk to somebody that way. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands, talking to the city, uh, talking about the uh, nation of Israel also. Your walls are continually before me. Again, the city of Jerusalem would be, at this time, laying in ruins. And yet God says, I haven't forgotten about you or your city. He says, your sons shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see. All these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. He's talking again anthropomorphically about the city of Jerusalem as if it were a woman. And we saw that in the text, right? We talked about the two women kind of symbolically, automatically used in Scripture. The city of Jerusalem, nation of Israel in particular, the city of Jerusalem, seen as a woman. And he's saying to her, who looks like she's got nothing, he's saying, no, you're going to be adorned with people in the same way, uh, and you're going to be beautiful in the same way that a bride, you know, a woman is in her highest point of beauty, one of the highest points of her life when she comes down that aisle and she's in her wedding garment. And he's just everybody's attention. That's the way the city of Jerusalem is going to be. For your waste places and your desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you uh, will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. There'll be so many returning uh, eventually in God's plan and his blessing of Israel that the city won't be big enough. Then you will say in your heart, again, this woman, 
this idiom of the city of Jerusalem, Who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone, but these, where are they? Thus says the Lord God. Again, this is all against that thought that says, captives languishing in in there, saying, the Lord's forgotten about me. And um, for those in the doghouse, when we go there, it's easy to think that the Lord has done with me. No, he's not. He has a future and a promise to use you. It says, verse 22, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. There'll be a time when the world wants to bring the Jews back to Israel during the millennium. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Now, those are cultural idioms of respect set in their culture. Will it be literal? They're going to lick the dust? Mm, I don't know. Again, it's pulled out of their culture. That is a, um, uh, it was a way of showing total obeisance, you know, submission to a, a king at that time. Um, however, this is the verse that uh, the Roman Catholics take as the uh, source for wanting to kiss the Pope's feet. There you go. Uh, lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. And uh, we've seen that in scripture a lot of times. They shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Those in captivity were waiting for the Lord. There's the promise. You just wait. And, you know, waiting, you could say a lot about waiting. Waiting on the Lord is hard business because it, it removes it from my control if I'm going to wait on the Lord. And it forces me to just trust in the Lord until he has a perfect time and a perfect way of doing it. It would be easy to take it into our control and fiddle with it until we get what we think is the desired outcome. But, you know, when the Lord hands you a blank spot, don't fill it in. It may take years to undo the knots that you might tie, taking it into your own power. Just wait on the Lord The scripture says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and then they'll mount up with wings at eagles. That's what we want, but it requires waiting on the Lord. They shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? In other words, you know, there's a lion, and he's got his prey, and he's, you know, got the big paw that's the size of the pulpit here, and he's got it pinned to the ground. You're going to go get him from him? Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you. Again, the captives would say, we have no chance here. The Lord says, no, it's not about their power. Compare their power to me, he says. It's not, it's, it's, no, one, no one's got enough power to overcome the Lord. When the Lord wants to move them out, he will move them out. I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet, sweet wine. It's verses like this that gives me great concern in addition to you know, the, the, all the other things you can be concerned about when you hear the terrorists and those uh, radicalized you know, Islam saying, we're going to wipe the Jews off the face of the map you know, and we're going to kill them. No, you're not. 
the Lord has very sincere and strong promises that the Jews will never be wiped out. And again, it's right here, the Lord's saying, those who are oppressing you are in big trouble with me, he's saying. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. Chapter 50, he continues this thought, and uh, this says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Again, there they sit in captivity. Again, the idiom of Jerusalem being a woman, it's strong in the scriptures, and Israel was likened to the bride of Jehovah. And so the, in that, following the same idiom, they would think he's divorced us. He's done with us. Here he's saying, no. Where, where's that piece of paper? Did I, did I issue anything here? No, I haven't. Or to which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? It was feasible in those days if a family got badly in debt and just were pressured and pressured that they, the head of the household could sell himself into slavery to pay off that debt, and he could sell his whole family along with himself into slavery until that debt was paid. The Lord's saying, I don't have any debt issues here. It's not me. I didn't sell you into slavery. The rest of this verse, look at it. It says, for your iniquities, your, you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions, your mother has been put away, saying, you did this to yourself through your disobedience. I didn't do this to you. I, I, had to, I had to chastise you to get your attention. When, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Over and over again, he had sent people to, to get their attention. And unfortunately, that's the case when we are honest about the times that we've fallen into sin. We recognize that the Lord had warned us before we ever got to that point. That's always the case. Uh, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Again, he's saying, nobody's, nobody's overtaken me and kidnapped you from me. This is all under my control. I haven't divorced you. You have in a place, you did it to yourself but you're coming out also, and no one's going to stop me. Remember how I brought you in the first time. You know, the oceans were parted. That was nothing for me. He says, when the time comes again, nothing's going to stop. Nothing can hinder my power from setting you out, setting you free. The Lord has given me, and then verse 4 through four through 9 is, um, again, uh, the um, servant of the Lord speaking firsthand. And again, I think it's woven here into this thought process of comforting the people in captivity, comforting people in the doghouse, so that, again, we have an example set before us of a rich devotional life that is going to be blessed and prospered in the Lord, that's going to be full of obedience and the blessings of the Lord. What does that look like? Because the Israelite didn't do that, did they? And so we get, to, we get to look at inside into this servant of the Lord and, and compare it. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. Obviously, this is the, that unique servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And I think it gives us a glimpse into his, if you want to call it, devotional life. There's a couple of things here. Look, at, look what it talks about. It talks about the tongue of the learned, and it talks about awakening his ear. As we look at his devotional life, there's some things that are just inescapable. Um, as, as we see Jesus in the, in, and his disciples in the Gospels, um, we get a couple of glimpses of his personal life, but we see it in action. We see him getting up long before sunrise and going spending time in prayer. And from that time in prayer, he is directed and taught and, and given instructions for the day. I know people don't like to hear it, but I think the scriptures are clear that um, there, there is a necessity for us to start our day, whatever your day looks like, whatever your day schedule looks like, find a way of giving Lord the first part of our day so that we can get anchored in him and be ready to face the world and all the people that we're going to encounter. You, it says here right here, he awakens me morning by morning. Uh, that's, that's obviously the first part of the day. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us our day, give us today our daily bread. You know, the, the meaning of that is that's prayed ahead of time rather than at the end of the day looking back saying, thank you for what you did give us. Now, that's, a, that's appropriate to say. But Jesus, Jesus said there's preparation for the day that is necessary. You know, as we get up and we live our lives, we're going to encounter all kinds of people. We're going to encounter our family. We're going to encounter our neighbors, the postman, people at work. I want to be a spiritual person when I get into that. And I don't want to be having to look for the Lord at those times. I want to be already communicating with him. And so, you know, in some ways you can look at this as from the standpoint of being an ambassador. If you or somebody is appointed to be an ambassador of the United States, again, they go to that country and as they go about their business as an ambassador, you know, when they communicate with people, they have to think of what they're saying and doing in terms of representing what the national interests are and not their own. And so they're, they're very determined to think about what they're saying and how they're acting, and it represents something far greater than them just being there. Well, we're the ambassadors of the Lord in the world, and so we need to be prepared ahead of time to speak and to react to people in a spiritual way rather than in the flesh. I think that's got to do with the, like the, um, the image we're given in Ephesians of the, of the armor, right? The preparation, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. One of those phrases. We're ready for what the Lord brings us today. And, and right here, the tongue and the ear, as is mentioned here in this passage. Um, you know, for all the ways you're going to react with the world, you're going to react with people right there. The tongue and what you hear. You know, the sanctifying of my mouth. What I'm saying is controlled by the Lord and spiritual and needful. Uh, that I might have a word in season to him who is weary. You know, I don't know how and when that weary person, you know, they just look like normal people, but someone, you know, in the day, suddenly that, that moment comes and you realize, wow, that person's really hurting. 
I want to be ready to speak to that person. And when I recognize that, it's too late to go and try to find the Lord and, and have that preparation. It needs to be right there. And I need to be ready to speak for the Lord right there. I want to be able to hear what, uh, what, it, what is leaking out from what they're saying. To hear, you know, hear through the lens of Scripture. There's a mixing of the ear and eye idioms there. So, you know, John 12, Jesus said this, which we're all trying to catch up to. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, on my own, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. I like to go back and do a few moments in my life and have that there (laughs) instead of what I said. So a glimpse into the Lord's devotional life is one that it's inescapable. He spent the first part of the day quietly with the Lord. Again, that Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught them to pray, he said, don't be like the hypocrites, you know, go outside and do other things. He says, but when you pray, you know, go into your closet, close the door. In other words, you're going to have a time when it's just you and the Lord. Whatever that closet looks like. Maybe it's a, take that literally. I don't know. For you, maybe, I don't know. But a time when it's just you and the Lord, you do, you pursue the Lord so that you're ready for the day, sanctifying my mouth, sanctifying my ears, so I can be that ambassador for him. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Again, the, that whole personal devotional life is, is um, the source of all that resolve to obey the Lord in the face of great difficulty also. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And again, we obviously go forward into the Gospels and think of um, the morning when Jesus was taken before the soldiers, before Pontius Pilate also, and is mocked even before the, uh, the Jewish kangaroo court and they were striking him while he's got, you know, a blindfold on, has no chance of, of you know, bracing himself for any of those blows. And, uh, of course, he says, I gave my back to those who struck me. I think that's referring plainly to both his scourging and then when the Roman soldiers, you know, when they mocked him, they put a crown on him, they put a purple ribbon on him, gave him, a, you know, a fake staff and said, Hail King, then they took that staff and they whacked him with it. But even for all the, the details that were given there, Isaiah tells us something we, we don't get out of the, the Gospels. It says, I, I, and I didn't turn back from those who struck me and my cheeks from those who plucked out the beard. It was a, it was a term of the, the deepest insult to uh, spit on somebody's face, to not hide my face from shame and spitting, and to pull their beard out. And so... Again, the, the resolution to go through the things that the Lord has appointed for us, you know, that might be very hard. It might be a time when we get rejected. And that's hard. That's hard to be rejected by uh, people whom you love. Um, and we have to be prepared for that. And the only place, the only way to do that is in personal communion with the Lord. Um, you know, that's why the Lord came, so that we could have personal communion with him, a living relationship, not a set of rules, not a religion, not forms and formats, but so that, that, that he can guide us. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, 
Look at the look at the resolution that flows out of his his personal devotional life. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Again, wow, what a, what a vision, what a view of beyond the temporary and the immediate. Um, that the long-term view that this, is, this rejection is just temporary. And um, the longer view is that the Lord is, is going to be with me. He is with me now. He's going to reward me. I am doing his will. This is all going to pass away, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. And then, uh, of course, that was to the godly remnant. But then also verse 11, look all you who kindle a fire. This would be to those who are not godly, who would be these fires that are lighting or would be to pagan deities who encircle yourselves with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So, um, again, Isaiah 50 gives us a great view into the uh, great need for uh, a personal devotional life that anchors our day. Jesus is our example. He did it. You know, I'm sure you've heard this. If Jesus needed to do it, how much more? But let me say it this way, I guess. Yeah, Jesus did it. And how much more do I need that daily guidance from him to settle the spiritual issues in the morning, to set our heart, set my heart and mind on a spiritual uh, life, a tone for the day, to take hold of my, of my heart, take hold of my mouth, take hold of my ears. Uh, that's only done in prayer, and that's only done in, in the seeking of the Lord in his word by his Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's finish there tonight. Let's stand and we'll pray. We'll go our way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Strengthen us in these things, Lord, and call us to yourself morning by morning. Thank you, Lord. We look for you to uh, protect us and to guide us and then meet us in the morning, Lord, because we need you and we love you and we want to be with you. Thank you for the the glimpse into Jesus' life that you've given us out of Isaiah. We ask that you would uh, make us like him, and we pray this in his name. Amen.